even better for y'all, where a couple of above-average idiots offer lowbrow commentary on highbrow health and wellness issues. Where do you want to start? Uh, so Friday, last Friday, the Dietary Guidelines Committee for 2025 commenced with uh, meeting number four, I think it was. They've had a few of these. They'll have a few more. They're coming out next next year, 2025. We're going to have a whole new food pyramid, food. I don't, maybe it's going to be like a food gloom, like a 4D sphere or something. Ooh. I don't know what, they, what, they, what they're cooking up. but Dodecahedron. <laughs> and it's just but, all bugs and vegetables. It's going to have a lot of vegetables <laughs> on it. <laughs> Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Well, the one of one of the committee members. Okay, so there's tw- there are 22 committee members, four dudes, just four dudes. Okay, so largely feminine in, 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 um, uh, influence over the food guidelines. Yeah, interesting. And four dudes are, you know, they might be soy boys. Betas. <laughs> I, I'm missing my stream deck. It's okay. We, it's better if we don't. Um, one of them is Christopher Gardner. He, he was the lead author on um, the Stanford Twin Study paper that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So I think it's safe to say that we're going to see a lot of helpings of, you know, cruciferous green vegetables, um, count on some corn, some soy, some wheat. Ooh, staples. Yeah, definitely. Cash Everybody, crops. everybody's diet should. We need way more corn, soy, corn, soy, and wheat for sure. That is true. Um, lots of fruit. Fruit's good. Fruit's good. You know, it's got it's got some fiber and some sweetness. You know, I don't I don't eat a lot of fruit myself. Vitamins you, and minerals. Do you eat a lot of fruit? You know, I've gone through phases. Uh, earlier in 2023, when I was more heavily carnivore I was doing, right? Like the predominantly meat and raw dairy thing. And I had a, a fairly significant amount of fruit with that as well. Um, apples, uh, mostly some blueberries. I do like bananas in the morning. It's really into mango there for a little while. That's a very, very sweet fruit. I mean, you can feel that one hit you in the dopamine receptors, man. Dude, that one I've- fires off go so overboard on mangoes when given the opportunity. <laughs> they, they are crack. They are the, the fruit equivalent of crack for sure. So yes, yeah, so, but right now I'm sort of in maybe like a fruit lull phase. Like I'll again do blueberries. I, I think that the antioxidants are good and I like the flavor and um, you know, occasionally I'll do those like, and you're going to love this, those little uh, squeezer packs. Oh, you know, like for little kids. Well, they're not just for little kids, okay? <laughs> don't don't do me like that. Um, actually, I first uh, Anthony brought them on the Smith River trip, and they were great for just a little shot of of glucose. If you're like mid meal, you couldn't really like stop and like unpack the cooler and eat something. They were just like ready to go. They're shelf stable. Um, and then I brought them to Elk Camp in the fall, and it was a great little boost of sugar when you just needed a little little pick me up or a few calories to get a little further down the trail. And they've, they've got other things in them, like, you know, whatever chia seeds or flax or something like that. Something for a little bit of substance, but so little um, squeezers, little squeezers, man. Yeah. Pretty good. But other than that, like right now, not, not a ton of fruit in my diet. I I don't fuck with a ton either. I mean, I have been making these, I'll take ground beef and mix that with some huckleberries. Ooh. Um, you know, cause we get the, we get, we get those around here. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and, I try to only eat it. I, I try to keep it, you know, to 
around this time of the year when I'm crushing huckleberries. Sure. You know, getting ready for the long winter ahead. <laughs> well, I think it's a little late for that. We're kind of in it, aren't we? Fuck, dude. It's like getting to be kind of, I don't know. We've, we've got these short days here and, and, it, and it feels it feels like winter is just coming, doesn't it? Well, it feels like winter just came. Yeah, all over this <laughs> And, uh, you know, because it was like polar vortex mm-hmm. season, which came early this year. Normally it's in February. This was in January. But it's supposed to be like 50 degrees next week. So I think it's going to feel pretty... Pretty balmy springtime. Amen, brother. Here pretty quick. So I get the the ground beef, uh, mix it with some hucks, and I put those in the food dehydrator. Mm. Dry and them out. Yeah, I've been made, it's got like a pemmican. Okay. You know? Sure. Um, I haven't quite dialed that that recipe yet, so I haven't shared them with you yet because they're like kind of, they're definitely like I. I, I I enjoy them sort of, but but not enough to, <laughs> you know, like, to, mm, to give them this, out yet. I'm proud of this because I made it, but <laughs> exactly. it's like something my mom would probably be like, "Oh, that's nice, dear." Exactly. And then yeah, just put it in the closet. Yeah. So anyway, back to the the task at hand here. Uh, we've got a food, a new you know new food guidelines coming out. Um, so we'll we'll keep a close eye on that over the year and and keep everybody abreast of what the powers that be think that we need to get fed question mm-hmm. do you think that bugs will make their debut on this food guideline oh man i sure hope so because that is just going to provide endless fodder for those of us who uh, <laughs> think that's stupid as fuck they've been making appearances in food uh with different names Ooh. i've been hearing i heard from a friend of mine who has a a shellfish allergy that he has to be particularly careful now because they've rebranded cricket protein as something different and there's something about crickets that's very similar. The protein is very similar to shellfish and they can cause allergic reactions for people with that, with that kind of uh, situation. So something for other people to, to look into and maybe be careful about. I, I want like, why, why do we need to eat bugs? Are we worried about, are, are, are we worried that we don't have enough food to feed everybody? Well, I don't think it's that. I mean, I certainly think that we have more than enough food to feed everybody. Um, Dude, have you seen, I mean, we waste so much fucking food. Oh, I know. Oh, absolutely. But even beyond the waste, like there's, there's still enough food to feed everyone. Um, I mean, and regardless of how you want to look at like the processes through which we've gotten to that point, right? Like um, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and things like we have just by volume, absolutely, you know, almost exponentially increase the amount of food we're able to produce on the planet, which is a good thing for feeding more people. I think the bug thing comes in where, where it's like they use dramatically less water and other resources to create an equivalent amount of protein. Now, whether or not that is nutritionally equivalent, I don't know. I'm not a dietitian or, you know, an expert in that, but I mean, that, that was the argument I always heard was they use vastly less water than it, than it takes to raise cattle, for example. But again, that, that could be propaganda. I don't know. And I think that there are, I mean, there are a couple of good books out there on the subject right now. I know you read that one that you pointed me towards. Defending def- Beef. Defending Beef. Was there anything in there about about that? I feel like Defending Beef might have been kind of like pre- Pre-bug pre culture? Ins- yeah. Mm-hmm. Pre, Pre-Davos pushing that? Which, which, I mean, yeah, we're talking 10 years. I feel like there was a kind of a peak, like right around eight. 10 years ago or something when, when we were, when, when bugs were really coming on the scene Mm -hmm. and then commercial, like they were available commercially, you know, like I was was, like, you could actually, 
I was, I mean, there was uh, the cricket cookies. Yeah, we had yeah. Cowboy Cricket Farms yeah. down the road in Belgrade, mm-hmm. Montana here, uh, just, just a few miles out of Bozeman. And we were we would stock these cookies that they ground the crickets into flour and put them in the batter. They were good. I mean, like, I didn't hate it. Yeah, you I mean, know? it was a fucking chocolate chip cookie. With- well, and that is my favorite <laughs> dessert. So I'm going to say they, they obscured it in just the yeah, right yeah, thing yeah. to get me to buy in. But uh, I'll never forget that time we were working on a, our kosher certification and we had the rabbi come by and we told him about the cricket cookies and he's like, you what? <laughs> you serve what? It's <laughs> like, never mind. Don't, let's just not talk. About I mean, no offense. <laughs> I hope nobody's offended by this, but kosher certification is a fucking racket. I mean, it, it's very expensive, you know, and if that is something that you need for your diet and your religious preferences power to you. I, totally. I'm not, I'm not knocking the preferences. I'm knocking the system that certifies it. It is not cheap. <laughs> well, even beyond like, I, it's not even, it wasn't even like that cost prohibitive, but it was very clear that that dude gets to set whatever kind of price that he, he wants. He's like an independent certifier within the, the greater regulatory framework totally. of what kosher means. Yeah. And, and, and Hey, I mean, I appreciate the fact that he was cutting us a deal. You That's know? true. But it still kind of illuminated the the system a little bit where I'm like, oh, so every what it's not like a ward. What do you what do you what do you, what do the, the Jewish folks call their like little cluster of of synagogues and like I mean I don't know. I'm it's not like what's the Bozeman like lo- local rabbi? Like what does he oversee? Do you know? Um it's the, um, I don't know. I was All trying right. to, anyway, I was trying to nice make a union dude. joke, but I, mean, I just didn't really, have it. Really, really nice Great dude. Great guy. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the certification process is, is, uh, well, it's interesting cause you can, you can certify the plant, like mm-hmm. the facility that the product comes out of and you can certify the product. Mm-hmm. We were safe from the, from the cricket cookie thing because they were prepackaged yep. and they weren't made there. Totally. Right. So like it had nothing to do with our product and it had nothing to do with our facility, but had it, it would have been a huge deal breaker. So I just find it interesting. Like there's a whole subset of people who observe kosher dietary restrictions that would not even not consider eating crickets, but find it like abhorrent, mm-hmm. you know, and other, other bugs as well. So interesting. I don't know if there's, I'm going to be excited to see if there's bugs in the new dietary guidelines. Fingers crossed on that one. We'll have to look. We'll, uh, we'll <laughs> Do they put back bugs in, uh, in bug juice? What is, is bug it, juice? It's like those little uh, cute little um, multicolored uh, squeezy bottles of juice that are like on the very bottom row at the gas, t- like at town pump. So like, have you ever, have you noticed like the, the most colorful, smallest bottles are always like at, like adults at, knee level? At child height? <laughs> <laughs> Why would they ever do such I know, a thing? Isn't that weird? Yeah, same with sugar cereal mm-hmm. and anything else that's fun. Did I saw there's a fucking Sour Patch Kids canned beverage now. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's out there. It's there for How many grams of sugar per serving? All of them. 200? All, every single, every last one of the grams. <laughs> <laughs> Serving's like just two for ounces. Our, for our sweet little angels out oh, there. Oh boy, we just, just love them so much. to keep them nice and pacified. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I mean, does it even do that really is the question. You know, I mean, there's always that the trope about like sugar high. I mean, I suppose now in my life, I find more fatigue coming from overconsumption of sugar than anything. Yeah. I don't know. I don't touch the stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> Griff is uh, a paragon of virtue, and uh, you would all do well to observe how stringently he, he follows yeah. his diet. Some days, yeah. Yeah, follow me. <laughs> do you real well. Yeah. Um, so... So that happened, um, which is a thing. Uh, the other really cool thing, have you heard of this guy, Nick Norwitz? I have not. Dude, Nick Norwitz, bad motherfucker. Um, young dude, 26, 27. He has his PhD from Oxford. Okay. Elite establishment. Mm, yeah, little community college over yeah. <laughs> across <laughs> the pond. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Juco. Great football team. <laughs> I don't get the reference, but it's okay. Yeah, I don't either. Um, anyway, he's got a PhD in biochem or molecular biology or something really sharp. Now he's he's a third year MD student at Harvard, and he has a he's been doing a lot of work on the lipid energy model and these lean mass hyper responder phenotypes that tend to. Uh, bubble up out of the ketogenic world. Interesting. So when uh, what they're what they're seeing is folks on a ketogenic diet, carbohydrate restricted. When you are depleted of your glycogen sco- uh, stores, there's this hypothesis that the uh, you know these circulating fatty acids wind up generating LDL. So people with a low BMI, like 24 below, um, tend to win on a carbohydrate-restricted diet. Their LDL tends to increase. Um, and we see the opposite with people uh, with a very high BMI. Hmm. Um, so, And just so everyone is aware, LDL is the cholesterol that you don't want. Or that you do. So this is where things get a little fun. Yeah, they say that LDL is the bad cholesterol. Mm -hmm. LDL is the one that is prone to oxidation and causing, uh, likely to cause arterial plaques. So LDL is the one that we have over time established a a link with ASCVD, arthrosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and high LDL levels. So that's the current dogma. Um, what the work that Nick and his colleagues are doing is essentially opening up that idea to further investigation. That maybe it's not just just high LDL in isolation. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's perhaps all these other um, you know metabolic biomarkers that 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 are also likely responsible for for that disease. Um, so we've kind of villainized LDL. Um, now HDL is the high density lipo- lipoprotein. So what these things do is, you know, fat is uh, water insoluble, right? So in order for it to be carted around in the bloodstream, it needs a protein attached to it. Okay, and so that's what these these uh, lipoproteins, these LDLs, HDLs. Um, now HDL is looked at as like an antioxidant. Um, and does not cause, I think, in fact, can, um, you know, break down that arterial plaque. I might be wrong on that. Hmm. Um, but so, you know, historically what we're, you know, people are like high LDL bad, low HDL bad. But what we were seeing with these lean mass hyper responders is you're seeing this lipid triad where we have 
high LDL or LDL like greater than or equal to 200, um, HDL greater than or equal to 80 and triglycerides, um, lower than or equal to 70, I think. Uh, I believe these are all like milligrams per deciliter, I think. Sure. I'm not sure what the unit is, but it, you can find it out. Mm-hmm. Um, those, all those three things, uh, in isolation are rare. Like it's, it's kind of rare to see any one of those things. Particularly uh, that high. Well, so like an, a high LDL, a high HDL, low triglycerides. Like, oh, I see. Like yep. seeing all of those things is fairly rare in the population or any one of those things in mm-hmm. the population. Mm-hmm. Seeing it, seeing that triad is perhaps evidence of, you know, some new, I don't not necessarily a condition, but maybe it's, and this is all, this is all open to further investigation and there's no, nobody's planted any flags on anything here yet, but it, it might appear as if that triad could offer potentially a, you know, maybe there's some sort of protective element there. Maybe there is some sort of other, um, you know, energy model at play with these. But I think what it's, what it's doing is it's opening up people's eyes that perhaps we can start. No, we're so, we're so clinicians are so geared towards evidence-based medicine. You've heard evidence-based medicine just like jam down our throat over the last couple of years. And for good reason. I mean, you're going <laughs> to, evidence is good. Yeah. If you're going to make a, uh, you know, claim. but if I'm a clinician, which I'm not, uh, but if I were, I would want to look at more than just the systematic reviews, more than just those meta-analyses. You know, I what's wrong with an anecdote? You know, what's wrong with, if you, if you have, let's say you have a patient who, you know, has, who's obese, you know, who's, who's tried a lot of different things and nothing has responded. You know, what's, what's wrong with, with trying, uh, you know, say a keto, a ketogenic diet for, you know, the purposes of potentially uh, improving some of these poor biomarkers, whether or not it's, you know, A1C or, you know, fasting glucose or even like some mental health problems, which is they're absolutely beginning to show there's some benefits, um, for mental health from a, a ketogenic diet standpoint. So, Interesting. I mean, if, if, you know, wouldn't, I would want my, my doctor, if I knew nothing, if I had, you know, if I was completely reliant on centralized health, like I would hope that my physician has, you know, a, has the reasoning, the deductive ability to (coughs) wade through all of the evidence and, you know, maybe use a a really, uh, you know, maybe get a little more insightful and a little, and dig a little deeper into my health and maybe, maybe throw me a, throw me an option that, has worked for a lot of people because what we're, you know, for all of its um, negative impacts on society, you know, with social media, access to information and anecdotes from, you know, millions of other people who are doing this, doing something similar is readily available to everybody. Now we can see people are being very open, you know, this kind of like decentralized health thing where people are being open about their biomarkers. They're being really open about how they're, get, you know, getting to, to these, these, these phenotypes, you know, we're, we're very open about our diets, our lifestyles, you know, we, we can see these changes, 
you know, why, why not in certain, certain patients, like why not rely on an anecdote? Yeah. I mean, I, it's a good question. And I think that especially for someone in that situation where it's like, you've tried a lot of things and, and you haven't had a lot of success. Well, you've got even less reason to avoid trying unconventional things. Um, but I want to step back just to make sure I'm clear. You're saying that, you know, this, this triad of high LDL and HDL in tandem with low triglycerides in a other, like in a, a visibly um, fit and metabolically healthy person is what is known as now uh, in, under this new emerging paradigm, uh, uh, a, what is it again? A lean mass lean hyper mass. responder. Lean mass hyper responder. Okay. And, and it's important to note on that too, like those numbers, you know, maybe like, okay, so if you're, you know, 6.5 A1C or above is diabetic, like what is 6.3, you know, like, so, so they've got these cutoff points for this lean mass hyper responder. There's probably a little bit of tolerance, you know, so like, I mean, you can, we're just starting, we're just starting to understand like what this phenotype is, Yeah. but it's clearly emerging in a lot of people yeah. who, who go on a, a carbohydrate restricted diet. It's interesting because I think there's there, there's already been some chinks in the armor showing up around the narratives surrounding cholesterol, right? Like I think um, Dr. Asim Malhotra has, has done a lot to break that open when he appeared on Joe Rogan's show and talked about, you know, his experience in uh, working in a hospital in England uh, as, a, as a very credentialed doctor. And I highly recommend people go listen to that episode. He was, um, he was, pretty much blacklisted or, or kicked out of the hospital that he was working with in, in, in his role, uh, basically removed from any ability, especially to matriculate through the ranks of the hospital because he was doing research and suggesting that statins weren't, uh, weren't necessary to combat high cholesterol because high cholesterol by itself wasn't necessarily an indicator of cardiovascular disease. But the statin lobby, the pharma lobby around statins, which are one of the most prescribed pharmaceutical drugs in the world, was so strong that they basically went to that to the hospital administration and said, "Like, you need to you need to get this guy out of here. This is not working for us." And they did because medicine is very captured by pharma. And so I, I wonder about like how this additional research will come out, what will be concealed or pushed back on and, and how that'll kind of shake out with the powers that be. Oh, well, my friend, I'm glad you asked uh, because <laughs> so Dr. Norwitz just released a, a paper um, and this was, okay. So it was uh, the studies, the sample size was an N of one. It was just himself. He, he did this, this experiment on himself. Um, now one could argue that, you know, he is a, he's the, the perfect subject for something like for, for some sort of dietary intervention exploration because of how disciplined he is, how fastidious he is with data collection, record keeping, you know, understanding the study design, um, understanding the analytics behind everything, understand, like has a very, very deep insight into that lipid energy model has a very, uh, keen understanding of, of metabolic health and, and, and how to design a, a study that's going to be, that's going to have some robust results. So what he did 
and and I don't want to like butcher the um, the methods too much, so I kind of like get to the gist of it. He went on. A, he basically was comparing um, the LDL decrease from a treatment of so it, for I think it was twelve days. He or no twelve Oreos a day, hundred grams of carbohydrates for like three weeks versus um, a typical statin treatment. And he did this on himself. He had washout periods in between. You know, it was very, again, like very detailed. Question? Yeah. Just 12 Oreos a day, that's it? No, in addition to his normal food and in addition to exogenous ketones. So he was making sure that he was maintaining ketosis. Um, So, you know, carbohydrate, otherwise a carbohydrate restricted diet. He was basically looking towards, looking to see if, there, if, if, if adding, if there was going to be, uh, you know, a, a difference in, in LDL and, and what he found was that again, sample size of one very well controlled study, but in his experiment, his LDL decreased further with, um, with the Oreo treatment than with the statin treatment. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So what do statins... Uh, I mean, uh, again, that's we've we've been made aware that in many cases statins aren't effective, and in many cases people have you know negative externalities associated with taking them that oftentimes are not really fully described when when prescribed. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think even with some of the more natural ones, like for example, in my in my family's experience with like what is it red red yeast uh, red yeast rice or uh, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. But, you know, that sort of natural application of it, not necessarily a pharmaceutical body aches, joint pain, like really just discomfort, just existing. So like if that's the trade-off, if it's like, well, you can, you know, you can risk a slightly higher cholesterol, which may or may not be a contributing factor to heart disease and be metabolically healthy, or you can try to reduce it by a little bit with this intervention that makes your life suck. Like, what would you rather do? Yeah. Well, and, and maybe I'm wrong too. You might, I think you you might be a little more hip on that, uh, on what Mahotra has put out into the world, but like, there's not a big difference in all cause mortality from people who are prescribed statins. Is that correct? It, it, I don't know. Okay. I'd have to look into that. I, I want to say that that's the case. Like, that, like that's it, kind of one of the doesn't, big po- points of arguments against them. It's like that yeah, statins so, don't dramatically reduce all cause mortality. Yeah, yeah I, I don't. Maybe know. I'm wrong. I might be wrong there. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass, and I should just keep details like that to myself. But I think well, that's it's why just, I, like, I think it's a question. It's a yeah. good question to be to be mm-hmm. answered. So something we should definitely make a note of and, mm-hmm. and look up and, and circle back on. But fascinating though. Totally. I mean, that, it, yeah. It, it gives it it all. It, it again. This all of scientific inquiry is all about us asking more questions. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're not always going to like so many papers end with, you know, this the the results of this research warrant further investigation, you know. That's <laughs> good. That's good. Like a, That's great. No, 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 no. Actually, the results of this paper suggest conclusively that if you eat 12 Oreos a day, your cholesterol will go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're you know, very fastidious about your diet and understand exactly how many grams of carbs and how and take know, exogenous and, ketones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of things, but you know, again, but, like he controlled for a lot of stuff here. So, you know? but my question though is, I mean, so the exogenous ketones are a variable as well. 
right? Because he wasn't existing under that paradigm in his normal diet prior to starting this experiment. Did he um, control I, for that? Too? I think he, so his, I think he said his normal diet is something like 80% fat, 18% protein and 2% carbs. So likely like always in ketosis. So he was just, he was introducing those to try to maintain the same ratio of macronutrients. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I'll be very curious or, or no, to know. No, he introduced those, he introduced uh, Oreos because they are, I mean, no one, no one is, is confusing Oreos as being a healthy snack, you know, and, and long-term consumption of Oreos is likely to lead to a problem. If you're, cons- if you're, if you eat 12 Oreos every single day, you know, like without, um, I don't know. Dude, they're vegan. Of course they're healthy. <laughs> Oreos are vegan. They're, of course they're good for you. <laughs> Stumped. Duh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got me there. You uh, got me um, okay, so so he introduced the Oreos because it's like very obviously like not a health food. Yeah. Should not improve biomarkers that would suggest better health. Nailed. Yeah, and they exactly. did. Exactly. And they did. So really, but, it just it really just like puts egg on the face of the idea of taking statins as a an intervention to reduce cholesterol. You know, or it just uh, warrants further inquiry. Nah, I suppose you it know, does that maybe, too. <laughs> maybe, like, what this does is it adds it adds to the body of work that allows the next researcher to have a more robust proposal to continue studying these these effects. You know, to continue looking at how can we develop, you know, these therapeutic diets. You know, how can we look at food as medicine, which is just this classic uh, thought process that that you know, all going all the way back to, you know, Hippocrates. <laughs> Hippocrates. God, what are we? What are we? A fucking Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Socrates. Keanu's best work, by the way. You know, like the food. Yes, like okay. I will. I will concede that it is that there's a lot of joy derived from eating meal, sharing meals with your friends and family. You know, there's that food can you know, derive some hedonistic sort of, uh, you know, outcomes for, for, for people, you know, it it can be fun and and filled with joy, but really like I, I would prefer like food, food is it's data, you know, it's fuel. It's, it's meant, it's meant to just like help us, you know, be like, keep on going. It's meant to help like really, I mean, I guess it used to be just meant to, Give us the fuel to like go find some more fuel. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to the point then where you you actually had the energy to like find a mate and court them and reproduce, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like, exactly. I suppose if you want to boil it all the way down to like the most basic biological imperative, that would be it, right? Just survive long enough to create more of you, right? But I think there's a lot to be said for the effect of of the mental aspects of food, like you mentioned. It's it's positively stimulating, uh, to, to dine with people that you enjoy. Um, the mentality you have around your food, I think is really important because, you know, cortisol is linked to a lot of, uh, you know, I, I would say an overproduction, overabundance of cortisol in your everyday life is linked to 
all sorts of maladies, uh, right? Cortisol being the stress hormone, you do need it to survive, but too much of it is a bad thing. And so like also having latent guilt around the things that you eat and having stress about all the things that you eat can, can cause problems as well. Yeah, so yeah, fuck that. You know, it's, it's like, like if you're gonna, if, if you're gonna beat yourself up over, over eating something like you, 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 you should, you should work on that first, really. I mean, so long as you're like metabolically healthy and you're not immediately in danger of like having a heart attack or something like that, like be, I, I, I try to be cognizant of like the way I feel about the things that I eat. And when I have a pastry from the bakery, across the street or whatever. I don't, I don't beat myself up about it. I enjoy it. I let it bring the joy that I want it to have. And then I also think about, okay, how can I, how can I do something that I know is physiologically good for me? Did I as have well? seen you in that bathroom lashing yourself in the mirror? <laughs> <laughs> lambasting your, your poor little fucking, uh, you know, just, just <laughs> incapable of handling you know, oh, yeah. every whim that comes across. Cause you were fucking downing a, a damn cannoli. I, I've seen you in there. Don't lie. Cannolis aren't my favorite, <laughs> but you know, I, maybe I've been known to punish myself once or twice, but here's a question. Um, do you think that the joy we derive at like Thanksgiving or whatever, or like a, a gathering where we're share, breaking bread, like, do we get that from being with our people or do we get that from the food? I suppose it depends, but, um, I get it from, being with the people, mm -hmm. but I also, I mean, the food is delicious and I think the process of making it together is also awesome. Like this last year, we, we had a hilarious time taking the Turkey out of the oven and it was so tender. It, it was just perfect, but we like couldn't flip the Turkey cause we had cooked it upside down and we tried flipping it and it just like starts falling apart, like limb from limb. And my brother and my mom and I are just crying laughing cause it's just like disintegrated on the, it, and it was tender and amazing and awesome. But so we were just, how, you're 36, 35? 34 next week. Yeah, so yeah. 34 years of, of living and, and you and your family have been cooking the turkey upside down all this fucking time? No, my mom, my mom <laughs> is very self-conscious about her cooking. She always thinks the turkey turns out dry. Even if it's amazing, she's like, it's dry, it's dry. I'm like, mom, it's fine. It's oh, good. So she's like trying a new technique? So we were trying a new technique. Cool. Yeah. And, and it worked. I, it did work. Awesome. Yeah. Well, if you learn nothing else today, you learn it. <laughs> I can turn that turkey over if you want the moist breasts around. That's right. That's right. Yes. So. But it what, is about the experience. It's about the experience. Which, the, food, the food is secondary, but it is a part of the experience. Mm, which you can, I guess some, some people probably might get a cortisol release from, from gathering with their family or friends, you know, or just avoid it altogether. Yeah. And, and, order up DoorDash for Thanksgiving. And that's great. Yeah. Like really whatever you're into. I mean, yeah, whatever you're into. Does it, are you, are you at all concerned about how insular we've become and how, how easy it is to, to access everything from the palm of our hand, from the safety of our bedroom? Yes. Does that, does that make you, you know, maybe, uh, like, how do you feel about that? It doesn't give me the best uh, feeling for the health of our society, I would say. Um, it has allowed, I think, a lot of influences to come over us that are that, that increase that isolation or that increase polarity, right? We're all consuming content from that, that's selected by an algorithm that's trying to design 
something that will keep us engaged on that platform as long as possible. And more likely than not, that's not, um, that's not like the, the happy go lucky, like dog befriends a goat and their best friends content. It's like, it's the fear porn and it's the over-sexualized stuff. And it's the, you know, the things that make you angry and upset at the others, whoever those are. And, and, so, I mean, like not to just get, go down a social media rabbit hole, but yeah, I mean, I think technology certainly has the ability to make our lives better and that it can make things more convenient, uh, more efficient, more fun and engaging. But I do certainly think that we have a problem as a society, probably just overall as a species now of over consuming those things. And like with anything, with food or, or anything else, like too much of a, good thing isn't a good thing. So that's, I think it's a concerning thing. How, how are you, where are you on it? Well, I, I look at when it comes to, you know, what's, what's coming across left and right and what's becoming normalized or whatever. I, the big thing that, one of the big things that stands out, I mean, how many ads for fucking better help do I need to, to come across? <laughs> yeah. <today>? <laughs> You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if there's any indication that we have a problem, it's like your feed being filled with like, Hey, here's uh here's some therapy for you. And it's not, it's like, it, it's not even just the, the feed or whatever. Cause like, thankfully I'm, I've been delevering myself from the feed, you know, as it were just the, the doom scroll or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've still got whoever in my ears, like anytime I'm in the car or on the, you know, at the gym or whatever. And I mean, it's, you know, untold amounts of, of, you know, people who are, who have, you know, share of mind are, are selling you better help, mm-hmm. you know, are selling you talk space or selling you fucking head, head book or head gear, calm, calm app or like, you know, yeah. and, and, and these things, you know, there obviously is a need to, to treat mental illness. And by no means am I, you know, um, attempting to, you know, de-emphasize people's struggles in this realm, you mm-hmm. know, like we, we all go through them some more so than others, some more, you know, some with more severity, some with, you know, a, a easier path to a clinical diagnosis. Um, you know, we all have, we all go through problems in our day to day that, it seems like now every single issue that that a human can face can now be diagnosed, you know, prescribed, um, and, you know, treated in some way. So, you know, I'm I'm all about you know releasing, you know, the the shame associ- associated with like seeking help. Um, or, you know, the, the shame, uh, you know, associated with being different or depressed or anxious or whatever, like I'm all about de destigmatizing that. But I think what's happening, and I'm pretty like, confident that what has happened is that we've gone way too far in the other direction. You know, like we've now, we've now normalized being mentally ill. Mm. You know, we've, we now find ourselves in a situation where, it's almost as if sometimes like having a, you know, being, being, having anxiety, you know, or, or having, being afflicted 
with with some sort of struggle is is almost like you get like social credit for it. Um, well, I certainly think that's the, that's the case. Yeah, I mean, you you see, you know, the attraction to marginalized groups for people, uh, which I think part of which is perfectly human. Of course, if you feel like you're a misfit and there's a community out there for you, you're gonna seek it out and you're gonna you're gonna find it. Um, so I think part of it is just human nature, probably. But certainly, I think that if if one naturally in, in uh, you know in isolation, if you will, which is sort of hard because you, nobody exists in isolation. But if if one is healthy overall, and you see that you can gain social currency, status, whatever it might be, within a certain group by identifying as having a certain uh, you know aberration in your personality or your mental state or whatever it is, um, there's an attraction to do that potentially as an incentive, you know, getting more involved into a group that you want to have status within. I almost think that it's not even, that it might be subconscious, you know, that it's not, it's not as nefarious as somebody sitting in their bedroom and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to game, game the system here and exploit you know, now not to say that I'm sure this does happen, but but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and, and default to having more compassion for for humans here and say that like we're probably subconsciously being fed a a constant stream of you know a models with Instagram face or whatever with like puffy lip, you know, basically this like cyborg looking female, um, you know, we're, we're, we're shown these sort of really difficult to attain standards of beauty that aren't even like classically beautiful hmm. that have just become this, this like mold, you know, we're being fed this stuff left and right. Or we see, you know, people, we read in the comments or whatever, people are affirming other folks for, you know, being vulnerable, you know, and, and somehow that seeps into our subconscious and is displayed through while that's happening. We're then being told that, you know, we're, we're kind of being propagandized that it's, it's, it's not only like that, not only is it not shameful to seek out therapy, but, but that everybody should be going to therapy. It's glorified. And in fact, here's, here's a coupon code for it. Mm. You know, from, from, <laughs> <laughs> that's weird. You're right. That's, that's a little odd. <laughs> you know, because yeah. why do coupons exist? It's a promotional tool. Interesting. Right. Yeah. You know, like if, if, if like, if something was, is so valuable that we can't live without it, then whatever the price is, we should be willing to pay it. Not, you know, because the, you know, not because it's healed girl summer and we get a fucking, <laughs> I mean, here's an know? interesting, here's an interesting, um, contrast to that mm. perspective. Uh, so I, I've, I've done like talk therapy, right. Um, in person. Yeah. In mm. person, both, uh, in, as a couple and, and singularly, um, <laughs> don't know if that speaks to the quality of the therapy. We were together, <laughs> with this therapist and then we weren't together and I, I kept going, but um, no, I, I, I don't mean any ill will towards um, my counselor. He's great. Um, although I did, I do think we spend most of our time just 
kind of arguing about politics than rather actually like <laughs> digging into things. Which, but you can do that with any other asshole. I could, <laughs> I could. And I, you know, um, and I, I wouldn't have been there as long had it not been uh, covered under uh, Medicaid, which I was on at the time, um, which was instrumental in me actually going. Cause had I had to pay, you know, whatever it was like 90, a hundred, hundred plus dollars an hour to do it. I wouldn't have done it. Um, so, and not all insurance covers it. In fact, the insurance that I have now, um, does not cover mental health services. So to contrast your, your coupon code thing, it it's, it's not, uh, made readily available through all, uh, insurance coverage. So it's not universally seen, interestingly enough, by, you know, some private insurance underwriters who are very good at understanding statistics and effectiveness and other things and may have their own set of incentives and things that they're, that they're trying to, um, you know, calculate for and optimize for within their, their own revenue model. Um, it's not universally seen as like this panacea of something that's going to help. But I mean, what's your experience? Have you have you tried any of the like digital online therapy stuff? Yeah, yeah, I did BetterHelp, um, couples therapy prior to my divorce. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we are two for two. Um, yeah, so you and, did BetterHelp as a couple. Yeah, and totally. What, was that you were together like in front of a computer? We or? were. We were um, not a great experience at all. Um, it was. It, it, the the gentleman, older gentleman, um, he was based in Montana, um, but you know, still we're remote. This would have been in what was his name? I don't recall. We'll, we'll bleep it out. I, I didn't. This the experience. I, I you know I I don't I try to maybe I wasn't like necessarily traumatized as much as my former partner was by by the experience, um, but just as a you know rational male uh, who you know, does assign some dollar value to the services rendered and whatnot. Like I felt that we got ripped off pretty badly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so you felt you got ripped off, but your, your former spouse. She was, it, it, the trauma for her has like lingered. Wow. You know, like it was, it was, uh, because you go to a, a, a situation like that, you go seeking help at, you know, potentially for some people, you know, like some of the lowest points in your life or when you're mm -hmm. looking for stuff like that, yeah. you know, when you're, when you are most susceptible to injury or when you're like, you know, most, uh, you know, potentially open to influence, you know, like that, that's often when we go to these people, it's not, it's, it, it might be the, maybe it's becoming more, more of the norm now, but like, you know, therapy could be this preventive measure that you're using to, to gather the tools that you need to go through life. It could be because you want to off yourself. You know, it could be because you've got substance abuse issues. And I, and I, I don't mean to like, you know, maybe like saying off yourself is, is a little, a little harsh, but you know, real talk. They, you know, I mean, this is, this is what we go through. I've Did been through it. Like we, I mean, that when we're, when we're at our lowest, we, you know, sometimes we really need that support um, to, or, or, you know, when you're on the, the verge of, you know, the end of a, of a marriage, it's a big deal. Absolutely. Know? I mean, yeah, it sucks. One of the know? most traumatic experiences a person can go through. Totally, I think if you, totally. I mean, no matter what really. And so did you find, can I ask, can I ask, did you find that, that 
that support that you were looking for in that moment? Did you get it from that experience? No, we got, the, the guy was very narcissistic. The guy was more concerned about relaying to, he was talk, talked more about his life. Really? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think that opens up, you know, a few, it, it, it opens up the possibility that there are more people like that out there. And if you, I mean, you can do your own Google, Google search and look on Reddit and look across, like look across any, any channel where people are discussing mental health and, you know, even look on like better help, you know, social pages and whatnot. Like, like even looking across these things, you will see both, you will see both experiences, positive and negative. You'll see a lot of negative backlash about some of these, some of these um, offerings. For sure. I mean, I, well, I could see that. I mean, yeah, there's so many, there's so many directions to take it. Well, here, I find yeah, here's it- something else. like when, when you, so the, the reason we wound up at BetterHelp was because it was really difficult to find, to like, to get on anybody's books. Because and, there's an absolute shortage of, of mental health professionals and, and with availability. Why, why is that? Is that because every single one of us are being told that we need to go to therapy all the time? So everybody is going to therapy. Is it because, you know, the digital environment has led to, you know, some form of dementia? Is it, you know, is it like, are there the, these forces out there that, that are actually, you know, artificially inflating the demand or is the supply just low? Well, I think that's a really great question, and I, I don't have any data to to know that one way or another. I'd be very curious to investigate that. Actually, um, I mean, there is a a thesis that we as humans are not evolutionarily prepared to deal with the rate at which technology has accelerated and the and the rate of change that that has produced in our in our daily lives. And we were talking about this the other day you know, you see a a resurgence of interest in homesteading, you know, people returning to the ways of old or, you know, getting back in touch with, you know, some ancestral form of living. And I think that's all a natural response and a a, a reaction to how quickly things are becoming digitized and how much of our lives are lived uh, on our phones and on the internet and how much of our so- socialization takes place there. And I find it interesting that, you know, what we are now seeking in the form of a Zoom therapist, such as BetterHelp, we would have previously confided in f- friends and family in person. And that's the irony there and, and the context within, you know, our, 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 our insular digital social lives is, is certainly not lost to me. No, I mean, yeah, you're spot on. Like the, again, like part of why, if, if you're engaging or you're seeking out therapy, mental you know, therapy from a psychiatrist, psychologist or whatever, you know, to give you the tools to be a more resilient human, but you're doing it, you know, on your phone, via text with a chat bot by yourself in your room. Cause the, I mean, there's, there's like AI therapies now to you know, like that exists. I was going to say, how, how would you even know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And soon enough, how would you even know if your better help counselor like, was actually a person? Or yeah. Not? So if you're, if you're going to develop tools to become a resilient human, but you're doing it by avoiding resiliency, you know, avoiding 
the awkwardness of being in public, uh, going out and, and meeting a stranger, you know, like what are we, what are we accomplishing? I mean, I, and, and again, I have like zero doubt that there is a subset of the population that will benefit from that. I mean, yeah, I think, I think people in very acute situations who, who need an intervention in the moment, like those resources are there for them and hopefully they're, they're taken advantage of. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how effective they are, you know, and, 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 you know, arguably the people who are most in need of acute treatment would really benefit from uh, the human touch. Yeah. You know, hug therapy, man. Mm. It's a real thing. And it's, it's a, it's something that I think you and I have been working on by just doing this, getting together on Saturdays or whatever, you know, like, making that time to, to like, to reconnect with your friends and family and not thinking that you're, you're like a drain on their emotional labor or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like that, like, I think that's the other, there's this other like, you know, strange facet of humanity is that we've, we've come to like respect everybody's time so much you know, that we, that we no longer, that, that, that it's easier for us to like, to, to give, to give people the space, space because we assume they don't have the bandwidth to deal with our shit. Mm, they're too busy yeah. or they've got their own life to deal with. They don't need to be worrying about me. Mm. I totally get that. There's an interesting, uh, flip side to that though. And, and maybe you can f help me fill in the gaps here because I'm riffing off, off of memory, but is it not true that when you ask someone to do you a favor and they say yes, they get more cognitive or, or, you know, emotional benefit from providing you help than you get from, from them giving you the help, right? Like they feel indebted to you or in some way bonded to you by the opportunity of, of giving that help. Yeah. Right? I mean, so am I, am I reversing that? I'm trying to remember the, the exact context of this, but it was really interesting to me. I mean, that's how it's like why things catch on, you know, for like we like we we tell people about things or, you know, share things with others for the, you know, potential social currency we can gain from turning somebody on to something. But even beyond so that, just so like the intrinsic like, value of like the feel good factor of like I was able to help that person like that is something that an emotion that, that people derive, and I can't say universally, maybe some people are annoyed by it or whatever, but, but generally speaking, that is an emotion that people feel when they're able to help someone else. And so to be the person who is in need of help to ask for that is actually not to, to bother someone, but it's actually to offer them an opportunity to feel better about themselves for engaging and supporting and helping. The harder part maybe is the ego part of the person asking for the help, humbling themselves enough to say, Hey, I need a hand here. Can you, can you help me out with this? Right. Well, true, truly the, you know, most, uh, you know, if there were, there were no hangups to be had, we're not, we don't help people because it helps us. Right. I mean, like, like if, or, or do we do it for altruism or do we do it because it makes us feel good? I think there is 100% a degree of self-interest in, in almost every situation where someone does something good for someone else. 
obviously there's an element of altruism as well. You want to do good for others because you want the world to be a better place, but if the world's a better place, it's also better for you. You want them to feel better because if they feel better and they're around you and their spirit is higher, it lifts you up as well. I mean, I I don't think you can get past the fact that almost everything humans do in the world is at least in some way self-interested. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all, you know, because self-interest is what drives us to pick up the trash and we see it on the street because we want to, we want to live in a clean environment. You know, it's, it's why we, uh, we wave when someone lets us in in traffic, you know, it's because, well, they, they did a nice thing for us. They, they let me go. And, and I want them to know that I recognize that I appreciate that. And that creates a social bond, like, and that feels good. Like there's so many things that we do that are self-interested. And I think that's actually positive. And the fact that it's been demonized to me, the, you know, selfishness or greed can certainly be blown out of proportion. It can certainly be, be overdone to the point where it's, it's no longer healthily in balance or beneficial to all parties. But generally speaking, I think most people don't operate in that space. Right. Right. You're you're probably right. I mean, let's, let's like kind of look at this therapy thing from like a, you know, macroeconomic level. Okay. I mean, what, Cause this is like this, I would consider this kind of like it's in your wheelhouse, you know, oh, maybe <laughs> sort of, I'm not an economist, nor I'm a doctor, <laughs> nor am I a uh, psychiatrist, psychologist. Do you, do you see any problems with something like medicine, um, being so, so centralized and so like if, if, if anything were to value from losing that financial incentive of capitalism, like, might medicine for the the good of humanity be something that an argument could be made to support moving away from from such a like from from the current system that we have so if i'm hearing you correctly what i'm hearing you say is uh, uh, what i'm hearing you ask is would medicine benefit from from not being a capitalist endeavor yeah um no i don't think so because i think that well, the system we find ourselves in now is is not a free market, right? I mean, as much as people condemn capitalism and free market capitalism as, you know, the the, the root of all evil, money's the root of all evil, like that's it's wrong. The love of money is the root of all evil is actually the uh, you know, the statement, the 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 full quote. And I think that that bears a lot more reality, but really at the core of it what what it is, what capitalism is, what the free market does is it just it allows all consumers and producers to define the value of a product that is represented in a price, right? For that product. And there's that, that's, that's a neutral, that's a neutral mechanism, neither good nor bad. It's just really, it just establishes, you know, a, a means by which people can exchange value at a point where a buyer was willing to buy and a seller is willing to sell. Um, now, I think that there's there are distortions that occur in the market, particularly when we find ourselves in a place where large pharmaceutical corporations, in this example, have the ability to spend billions of dollars uh, lobbying politicians to pass bills that favor them or relax regulations or you know, someone who works as a regulator in the FDA, for example, uh, is 
in some maybe backdoor meeting offered a a job at the pharmaceutical company as a consultant once they leave there. So there's the incentive. They know that their career path leaves regulatory to go into uh, pharma. So they are kind in their regulation of those pharma companies because they want a cushy job. I mean, it's referred to as regulatory capture. It happens across many, many industries, and it's certainly happening in the pharmaceutical industry. And I think that's where things get pretty sticky because when, when the government has, is given enough power to pull the purse strings to, to print money to whatever, you know, like when they're get, when they have the resources to allocate and dictate who succeeds, who gets the, the money, who doesn't, uh, or who gets regulated more strictly and who doesn't, then they have the opportunity to uh, to pick winners and losers. And that's not a free market. And that results in in abuses, in corruption, right? There, then it's then it's within the pharmaceutical company's best interest to give money to the politician or or you know work with the regulator in some way to like funnel money to to whomever they are they're funneling money to to, to create an environment where um, where they can succeed at others' expense. And and that's that's where things go awry. But I don't I don't think that that I don't think that you can even remove money from this situation because it's really just a means of exchange. It's really just a way of, of allocating value. And, and, you know, this is me being a, a layman, uh, non-economist, you know, anything like that. But, um, but I just don't see how an argument can be made that it is even possible to remove that. Cause what does the situation look like in that case? Right. How do you, how do you, what would that look like if, if we were to be able to remove money from from medicine well we obviously aren't too interested in what's going on with our neighbors to the north i mean we would certainly use use some of the the problems of a of of socialist medical system to i mean we have examples of, of these things to to display how difficult it can be to access treatment you know we're right. we're it's it's still difficult to access treatment in, yeah. this, in the case that we're talking about here. Right. You know, like it, it, like we haven't necessarily solved the issue through, through capitalism with, and I'm, I'm going to specifically like keep this focused on, on mental health treatment. Oh, sure. For the, for this. Okay. Yeah. I kind of went on a slime tangent, didn't I? Yeah. No, but that's okay because so much of mental health treatment is, Oh, psychiatry it's, it's, is, is it's prescribing through, pills. It's through pharma. It's through chemistry. Quite true. You know, and that, I mean, I had a friend recently, she's young, um, who she lost her little brother a couple years ago and she's dealt with, with anxiety for a couple years and, and it's become, you know, she's a young woman now. She's like 18, 19 years old. And she was recently prescribed lorazepam and told to, uh, stop going to class, basically told to like remove, like basically told to get all your responsibilities off your plate, take these drugs. And, and that's going to, that that's, that's going to help. Mm. That's going to dull your pain. It's going to make, make life easier for you. You know, that's, that's like a, a failure in my eyes of, of the current system. I wouldn't disagree one you know, bit. And it's, and it's one that for all I can tell is, is, is there's a financial incentive for somebody somewhere. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think the the failure there is the failure to recognize intrinsic human motivations and incentives. Um, sure, it's easier in the short term to pop a pill and not go to school, but is that really sustainable? And is that really something that makes a person feel fulfilled in the long term? I mean, you know, we're we're so focused in our society right now on happiness. It's like, are you are you happy or not? right? Well, that happy is an emotion. Emotions are fleeting. Sadness is also an emotion. It's also fleeting, but like purpose and meaning and doing something that's, that you feel is worthwhile, that, that gives you real, a real sense of, of value as a human being is, is something far deeper than those fleeting emotions that that person is probably not going to feel by not going to school, you know, by not going to school, she's not, you know, going to achieve a good grade or she's not going to graduate and then get, you know, into a career that makes her feel like she's accomplished something uh, or whatever the path in her life might be. And I think that there's, we've certainly seen a resurgence of this sort of messaging directed at young people specifically who are predominantly the ones finding themselves, uh, diagnosed either officially or, or self-diagnosed with mental illness or anxiety or depression or, or whatever, this sort of messaging is, is coming back to the forefront in terms of like, Hey, like what is it that, what is it that really gives you purpose and meaning? And, and I think that's a really difficult question for a lot of people to answer for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm asking myself that question yeah. often, right? It's like, not like I'm sitting here, preaching something, you know, that, that I'm not also totally working through and struggling with and trying to determine because so many things in life are outside of our control that it's like, if you concern yourself with them too long, it gets really freaking overwhelming. And all you can do is just like, put your nose down, try to focus on something that you think is important. That's going to add value to the world in some way, contribute whatever little nugget of truth you have to the conversation, you know, to, to do the nice thing for the person in your life, to let the person in, in traffic, to just like take control of your world in whatever small way you possibly can. And then just keep doing that. I think is, is probably more productive towards an end. That's actually going to result in something that's substantial and sustainable and meaningful for a person instead of just taking the easy road really and opting for a pharmaceutical intervention and, and just letting all the responsibilities of life go. Where, where, where does it, where does a person go from there? Like what's the end result there? There isn't one. I'm pretty confident that and it, for as much like shit as I talk about, you know, charlatan influencers and the, the downfall of social media on, you know, the happiness of, of the Western world and the happiness of our generation and that of, you know, below us and the ones to come. I, I think what you, you think you really nailed it in that we can't necessarily rally against the system. We have to figure out how to work within that system to, focus on the small little sphere of influence that we have. 
you know, for right, right this minute, it's you and I, you know, and that's better than even if, even if you and I are the only people that ever hear this conversation, you know, what did we do for each other tonight? You know, and it's not like that was, that this is that difficult. Like, sure. There's gear around here to like transmit this all, you know, and, and that's not maybe like, you know, immediately accessible to every single person out there, but like anybody can, can talk, can get, can get on the thing. And I mean, no, yeah, you know, we, a lot of us have the ability to, to get out and make, make the world a better place for one person, yeah. even for ourselves, just by having conversations like this, just by starting up a little, a men's group, you know, ladies group, starting up doing a, doing, making it a point to have dinner with, with some friends once a month or once a week or whatever, you know, like these things are not out of our reach. Mm -hmm. And while the rest of the world is collapsing around us, we can still enjoy those moments and hope that maybe, you know, the, the interest that compounds from these little groups of people doing little things can ultimately have a really big impact. Yeah. Rogan likes to say a lot that the hardest thing you've, or the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. <laughs> and that's kind of a silly way to phrase it, I think, but I think the the meaning is really true that really, how do I want to put this? Two generations ago, courage was getting into an airplane and flying into a war zone where you were pretty sure you were probably going to get shot down and die. Meanwhile, you had a wife at home, maybe a kid or two like that. That was courage. Now it's courage to pick your eyes up and look at another human as you walk by them on the sidewalk to some people. And it's easy for me to think about that from where I am comfortable with that and scoff at it or say that's silly or whatever. But like, really, that's really hard for some people through perhaps no fault of their own, perhaps, you know, uh, genetic predisposition, perhaps just environment of, of their upbringing or, or whatever, or, you know, perhaps due to some function or feature of the life that they've crafted for themselves or the life that they now find themselves living. Regardless, have courage. Make it a point. If you find yourself in a place in your life where it's not what you want it to be, understand that the only person that you can 100% rely on to change that is yourself and that all it takes to change that is to make a decision to do something that's hard or scary and then do it again and understand that once you do it, like what's the worst thing that's going to happen, right? It's like we walk around these days and, and th this phrasing has been thrown around a lot. It's like we walk around these days with an, a stress and anxiety level comparable to that which someone would feel walking around knowing that there was a tiger stalking them in the jungle, right? Like we, we, we think about like for someone to get up and address a, a, a room full of people, right? Could elicit that exact same response as if you were literally going to be eaten by a wild animal. When you know, like if you were to be really rational about it, there's no risk to your life by standing up in front of a group of people and speaking. 
yeah, sure. You could embarrass yourself, but like, you're not going to die. And yeah, maybe you stumble over your words, say something stupid, whatever. People laugh at you. You will not die. So like, yeah, good, good. You're getting exposure to, to yeah. So know, like, keep that, that you can beat next time. Exactly. You know, you know what it felt like. Exactly. Yeah. Keep it in perspective, and just trust yourself that like, no matter what happens, so long as like you're literally not in physical danger of actually dying, just go do it, and do it again, and do it again, and before you know it, you're gonna look back on yourself in a year or whatever and be like, damn, I didn't think I could do that, but I can. I mean, I felt that way about starting the freaking podcast because mm-hmm. it's like. Am I, do I have what it takes to talk to people on the internet? Can I do it? Do people care about what I have to say? Am I going to sound stupid? I'll tell you what, I have sounded stupid a lot and it's all out there on the internet for people to listen to. And, and there's going to be more life. I do it every fucking day. I know. <laughs> and if you can laugh at yourself and not take it too seriously and just be like, God, I sound like a fucking idiot. And then put it, turn it into your intro for your podcast. <laughs> then, then you're on your way, you know? And I think maybe, maybe at the end of the day, that is another thing too, that we just take things a little bit too seriously. Mm -hmm. We need to just relax. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's something, you know, I don't want to, I want to make sure that we, we get everything here and that we don't waste anybody's time. But I mean, let's, let's talk about like some, you know, real quick, like if, if, I mean, I've got some, I'm sure you've got some, like, how do you, how do you manage dealing with social media and not let it become something that stresses you out, that you feel bad about, you know, that, that makes you, you know, that, that, that winds up releasing more stress hormones than, than joy. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you balance all of that? I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind, because I do have a, problem with falling into the, the doom scroll trap, right? I'm susceptible to that just like anybody. Um, the first thing I'll do when I recognize that I have, I'm in that pattern is I'll delete the app off of my phone. Um, just delete it, not just remove from home screen. Cause you can still sneak around and you can find it somewhere. You know, you'll get used to that pathway just as quickly as you got used to wherever it was on your phone before that. I'll just delete the app for like, I don't know, a couple of days. And I've done it enough times now that by the time like, like when it, once it's gone and it's out of my reach, um, I can, it's enough of a pattern interrupt that I am okay with just forgetting that it exists for a while. And then I'll eventually log back in and I'll, I'll have like, you know, 20 messages and blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll, I'll address those. And usually that first time back in, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is gross. I don't want to be part of this. And then I'll, I'll delete it again. Eventually, like it'll work its way back into my routine and, and sort of the cycle starts over again. So really, I just try to do that on a macro scale is just make sure to take breaks. Um, but as far as like an active management of moderation, I don't really have a good tool. Do you have anything that would that works in that? I mean, delete, deleting the... So I got... I, I Last year... I would say I probably, if there is some sort of diagnosable disorder with regards to, you know, social media derived stress, like I certainly put myself through it. Um, it was, you know, probably there are worse cautionary tales than mine, but like I definitely got to a point where it became 
so overwhelmingly stressful and like a ball of energy welling up inside, like behind my eyes, uh, you know, reading negative comments, um, you know, engaging in senseless debates with people I've never fucking met, you know, who are chirping at things I've said. Um, you know, like I got to that point because I was told to show your personality for your brand, you know, like somebody's got to do it, like be the face. And the only way I found to delever myself from all of that was to stop using them, (laughs) you know, was to delete them. And what that did, and I realized the irony of that, given that we, you know, release this on YouTube, that we will like release this across social media platforms, uh, you know, as we, we, we deem it's necessary. But the strategy that I found over the last, you know, couple weeks of doing this, starting this versus how I used to approach social media, I used to be very concerned about the analytics and check them incessantly. Um, and I, I'm pretty confident that that is a direct path towards depression. Mm. Um, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm fairly certain that that, that is, that has led to the downfall. Did you ever hear of a guy named Dave Hollis? That name is very familiar. He was a, uh, like a Disney executive, you know, by all accounts crushing it. Um, his wife wrote, like a, a female self-help book and, um, became, you know, this really popular self-help influencer. And, and he quit his job with Disney to support that in addition to like building his own little self-help empire, mm-hmm. um, which wound up, you know, it's a, I mean, a, a really sad cautionary tale. I mean, he went he got as, as deep as you can go to where, where it was, you know, document, documenting every single facet of his life, mm. um, comparing himself to his wife, his wife's social media following oh, far geez. outpaced his, it led to their divorce. It led to, you know, his, you know, closeted substance abuse. Um, he wound up overdosing, um, you know, had yeah. everything followed this, social media path and you know it, it led to you know the, the doom and gloom yeah and so i think it's tales like that like we're when we're just chasing those likes when we're responding to the the stress of some stranger chirping at us when we're wondering why you know we only have why people only watched up to six minutes of our hour-long <laughs> video or whatever um you know and i hear like I hear people who are successful doing the same thing, you know, compare like talking about their likes and their views and whatnot. And like that has got to be, particularly if you're, if, if you're just an individual not running a brand or whatever, like it's the last thing you should fucking care about. Yeah. So, you know, like, I, and I, I've just found that like taking that break, not trying to live up to anybody's expectations, least of all my own, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, like coming at this from a, from a standpoint that like, I'm just trying to be here for me and you. Yeah. You know, I'm trying, like, I, I want to release that video. You know, I want to make sure I get this, this 
thing done because I promised you I would. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, like that to me is the re- is the reward. Yeah. You know, it's not the watch time. Um, if we can, if we can, you know, achieve that goal of making one person's live one percent better every episode, then you know, aces, bro. Like that's that's I mean that's even better. But like, but if I if I can show up for you, you know, week in and week out, like that's the work. Yeah. You know, and that's the work that like anybody watching this can do for their their homie for themselves. I think that's a really great point. And I mean, to, to maybe to put a bow on it, right. It's like, instead of chasing the cheap dopamine hits of tracking the analytics or however many notifications you have or, or, or whatever, think about the fact that doing a nice thing for someone else releases dopamine also and doing hard things releases dopamine also. And, uh, Perfect way to to sum it up, Griff. I mean, our mission with this thing, apart from just getting to hang out with a great friend and have a great conversation, is to try to help one person make their life 1% better with every episode. And I think keeping our eyes and our focus, each individually, you and I, anybody listening or watching to this, on that kind of incremental approach, to life, not feeling like we have to compare ourselves to anything or anybody else, but maybe ourselves yesterday. Uh, and, and having a lot of love and compassion for ourselves and grace for our own failures and those of other people is really what is going to make life more meaningful, way more so than how many notifications you have. A fucking men, bro. I feel really good after that. Me too. <laughs> I mean, that gave me the warm and fuzzies. Me yeah. too. Hell yeah. Well, I'm going to go to the gym now. It works if you work it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Always fun. Thanks for watching, everybody.